Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for today is taken from our gospel reading from the first chapter of St. Luke with an emphasis on these words. The angel answered Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is our text, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Fifty-one years ago, yesterday, on December 23rd, 1972, one of the most well-known plays in the entirety of the NFL history took place at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. On this cold afternoon, the Steelers found themselves trailing the Oakland Raiders 7-6 to with only 22 seconds left in the game. At 4th and 10, on their own 40-yard line, Pittsburgh needed a miracle. Coach Chuck Knoll called a pass play, gambling the game on rookie wide receiver Barry Pearson. But the moment that the ball was snapped, everything started to go awry. Steelers quarterback Terry Bradshaw dropped back and immediately under pressure from Raiders linemen Tony Klein and Horace Jones, scrambled to his right, and from his own 29-yard line, he threw the ball, aiming for halfback Joe John Frenchie Fuqua. Raiders safety Jack Tatum collided with Fuqua just as the ball arrived, and Tatum's hit knocked Fuqua back to the ground and sent the ball sailing several yards away end over end. Steelers fullback Franco Harris, after initially blocking on the play, had run downfield just in case Bradshaw needed another eligible receiver. After Bradshaw threw the failed pass to Fuqua, Harris came in behind him just as the ball was deflected, which allowed him to scoop up the sailing ball at the Oakland 44-yard line just before hitting the ground. Then, Harris broke out, running past two linebackers, using a stiff arm to ward off Raiders defensive back Jimmy Warren. The dramatic play culminated, everyone holding their breath with a Steelers touchdown, snatching victory in the final seconds of the game. Sportscasters and commentators alike have called this play a watershed moment, not just for the Steelers, but for the entirety of the National Football League. The start of a bold new era, which would see them win four different Super Bowls throughout the 70s. So influential was this single play that it was even given its own name, a name which some of you have probably already guessed by now. They called it the Immaculate Reception, the perfect play, the seamless coming together of all the right elements for greatness, except, well, except if you were listening closely, you probably noticed that Harris's game-winning reception was less perfectly planned and coordinated and more happenstantial in its execution. Harris was in the right place at the right time, and he got a lucky bounce. For that reason, people to this day debate if that play was even legitimate. Perhaps the legacy of this play is fitting, given that it takes its namesake from an even more world-changing 
and even more misunderstood event. In today's gospel reading, we heard again the annunciation of the Messiah's incarnation by the angel Gabriel, this time to his mother Mary. This passage is cited by our friends in the Roman Catholic Church as the basis for a doctrinal statement which holds in part that St. Mary was not only the mother of God, the Theotokos, but the sinless mother of God. They call this doctrine the Immaculate Conception. Now, the coming together of the perfect plan and purpose of God with the perfect vessel to host the Savior of the world, that's a pretty big statement, isn't it? In formulating our response to a statement like this, I think it's only fitting that, like the referees of a big game, we go back and we take a play-by-play of what actually happened in Luke chapter 1. Here again, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now take note here how Mary is referenced in these opening verses. First, she is identified as a virgin who is betrothed. In the Greek, this word translated as virgin is called parthenos, And it carries connotations more than just mere chastity. A parthenos could most literally be translated as a young, virtuous woman. One who conducts herself with virtue and piety, and in the Jewish context of the word, with covenantal faithfulness. The same term is used elsewhere in the scriptures to describe temple maidens who lived in Jerusalem. Pious women who served a liturgical role in Israel's worship life. These were women who prepared the priestly garments, they set the paraments for worship, they maintained the sanctuary and the altar of sacrifice, they even weaved together the veil that covered the most holy place. In short, you could probably think of these temple maidens, these Parthenos, as like the altar guild of their day. But still, despite all of their good works, despite all of their God-pleasing behavior, sinless, they were not. Despite their high place in Israel's worship life, they still needed the same forgiveness that everyone else needed. Nothing they did as part of their personal piety made them any more holy than all of their brothers and sisters in Christ in the faith. This brings us to the other big identifier for Mary in these opening verses. Did you catch it? The angel called her favored one. Now certainly, God's favor rested on Saint Mary, or he would not have chosen her to bear his only begotten son. Yet this too does not, on its own, indicate that Mary was somehow magically free from the stain of sin. Throughout the entirety of the scriptures, we see the Lord God resting his favor on poor, miserable sinners like you and me. In spite of their sins, in spite of their shortcomings, God works in them by his Holy Spirit to accomplish his great plan and purpose. 
Thus, Mary's status as a favored one has far less to do with her own righteousness than it does the grace of the God who made her and called her. Mary is blessed and favored not for her works of faith, but for who that faith is in. We continue. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now here in these verses, the task ahead is spelled out plainly for Mary. Dispelling her fear and her unrest, the angel assures her that because the Lord has favored her, that she would be given the honor and blessing of conceiving in her womb that very child of promise who would redeem Israel and who would establish God's everlasting kingdom. Note again that these glorious accomplishments They're not performed by Mary, are they? No, they're performed by God, working in her and through her. Mary would not sit on David's throne, nor would Mary reign over the house of Jacob. No, her task, her task would be to foster and care for the one who would do these things and who would do still greater things than these. Mary's office as Theotokos would not be a glamorous one. Just as the work of all our mothers is most of the time hardly glamorous. In nurturing and in loving and in providing, Mary would accomplish God's plan and purpose by raising up the Christ through his infancy and through his adolescence. These ordinary tasks would be precious to Mary and they would be precious to God. For he establishes all mothers to mirror his tender love and care for his dear children. These good and God-pleasing works, however, still do not make Mary perfect or sinless or holy. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And here at last in these closing verses, we come to the meat of the story. How will these things be? Was the question from Mary's lips. These things would be not by Mary herself, for she has no special power or authority to conceive of herself that perfect child who would rescue all the world. And yet... By the inner working of the Holy Spirit, 
the miracle is accomplished. And Mary, though not holy by herself, would give birth to the Holy One of Israel. God wasn't waiting around to find that one perfect person in all of creation who was somehow fit to carry his son into the world. No, God made Mary. He made her for this task, and he called her according to his purpose, as indeed he calls each and every one of us. He did not need that one special person before he could pull the trigger on his plan of salvation for nothing is impossible with him. The immaculate part of the immaculate conception, then, we see, is not the mother of God, but it is God himself. God, who alone is perfect in holiness, makes Mary holy by the work of his immaculate son. Mary, in her death, is now free from sin because the child who she bore set her free by dying for her and for all people on Calvary's cross. Jesus Christ came to earth for his mother Mary in the very same way that he came for you and for me. Jesus' work on her behalf was, in every sense of the word, immaculate. It satisfied the entirety of God's law. It paid the penalty of sin so that Mary and we would be declared righteous before our Heavenly Father and fit to dwell with him in perfect holiness forever. Though we in the Lutheran Church do not hold St. Mary to be without sin, neither do we overlook the tremendous honor that God visited on her by the angel Gabriel. Mary wasn't just in the right place at the right time. No, she uniquely showed in her body the loving grace of God in a way which he had never before communicated to man. Submitting herself as a humble servant of the Lord, God made good on his promise, which was made all the way back in the Garden of Eden, to give offspring to the woman who would crush the serpent's head. The incarnation of Jesus Christ reveals that perfect plan of our great God, which overcomes all our sinful disobedience and rebellion. And so this day, as we prepare for Christmas Eve, we rejoice with Mary that so glorious a blessing, that such immaculate grace has been shown to us through his Son. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of God, which far surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in the same Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.